You're listening to ABC News Radio. Welcome to the Weekly Post, where we take a look back at some of the stories making news this week. I'm Ellie Grounds. First, some headlines. 31 people died in two mass shootings in the United States. 22 people were killed after a gunman opened fire in a Walmart store in El Paso, Texas. And 10 people, including the shooter, died in an attack in a busy bar area in Dayton, Ohio. Two bodies believed to be those of the teenage suspects wanted over the death of Australian man Lucas Fowler and his American girlfriend were discovered in Canada. Bodies that Canadian police say are those of Cam McLeod and Bryash Miguelski were found in dense scrub in Manitoba, one kilometre from where several items directly linked to the wanted teens were found. Uh, the result of the division is uh, 59 eyes, 31 noes. I declare the motion passed and the bill passed. An historic bill to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales passed the state parliament's lower house following two weeks of impassioned debate. Members of parliament were granted a conscience vote on the bill, which aims to remove abortion from the Crimes Act and define it as a medical procedure in its own legislation. State and Territory Premiers and Chief Ministers met with the Prime Minister for the first time since the election in May with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and recycling two hot issues on the agenda at the COAG meeting. Australia have come up with the most gratifying, memorable win and they've been all over England today. And Australia took a 1-0 Ashes series lead with a win against England in the first test at Edgbaston. The 251-run win saw Nathan Lyon grab his 350th test wicket and Pat Cummins take his 100th. More stories coming up. This week saw the 75th anniversary of the Kaura prisoner of war breakout when more than a 1,000 Japanese prisoners of war attempted to escape from the POW camp. It resulted in the deaths of more than 200 Japanese soldiers and four Australian guards. But all these years later, what makes the New South Wales country town of Kaura so special is the way it turned tragedy into an enduring friendship between the townspeople and Japan. Graham Apthorpe is the author of The Man Inside the Bloodiest Outbreak. He told News Radio how the town commemorated the anniversary of the breakout. Very, very frosty morning. Um, <laughs> we had a, quite a gathering up there. We'd had a, also had a, an event up there starting around about 5.30 that afternoon. Uh, that went for an hour and then we went to the Merrill dinner where we had Dr Brendan Nelson speaking. Um, after that, it was a wonderful night, but after that we all went home for a cup of tea, a cup of coffee and then gathered back up there around about one thirty this morning. There was a, a large fire that had been lit there a few hours beforehand just to keep everybody nice and warm because it was very, very cold. The conduct of the night uh, revolved around what actually happened back at 1.50am on the 5th of August uh, back in 1944. We, um, Private Alfred Rolls, was on guard duty right in the middle of the POW camp and when he was approached by um, a Japanese who was panicking because he was trying to get a message to the Australians that the breakout was about to occur. Uh, when the uh, when Private Rolls uh, heard that, when he saw that man racing towards his uh, guard post, he fired two warning shots, and that's exactly what happened uh, at 1.50am this morning. Two warning shots were fired. The response from the uh, neighbouring military training camp was to fire three red flares, and also three red flares were also fired. It was very simple. Uh, mm-hmm. ceremony was very touching, but uh, we wanted to uh, not... not 
in any way to, to cheapen what had happened, but to simply signify what did happen 75 years ago. I understand his son was actually there. Well, his son fired the two shots. Yes, oh, we, had, wow. we, had, we had permission to do that. Uh, so Gordon Rolls, who was the president of the Carrow Breakout Association, actually fired those two shots this morning. Who else was a, a part of the commemorations this week that, that might have been around all those years ago? Are there many survivors left, Graham? There are just a couple, we think, of Australian guards, bearing in mind that most of the Australian guards were World War I fellows or right. they were um, still young, uh, young men in World War II but had been downgraded for health reasons. They weren't able to be frontline soldiers. But we do know of a couple of um, older fellows, but unfortunately they were not able to attend. Uh, but we did have um, uh, back Mr Teruo Murakami, who is 98 years of age, and he was a POW at Cowra, and he did participate in the breakout. Incredible. Can you explain to me how the town of Cowra has managed to turn this this tragic event into something really positive today? The, oh, there's been a, a number of things that have happened, I suppose. Uh, there's been a, a high school exchange program through, with uh, Cowra High School and Seikei High School in, in Tokyo. They have uh, been going for 50 years. So each year a Japanese student from Seikei will come to Cowra and spend a year here and a Cowra student will go to Japan. And, and spend a year over there. That, that has been a, a very strong program. Uh, a lot of those uh, Kara people have gone on to um, outstanding careers with um, with their Japanese language skills that they've been able to pick up. The, the Rotary Club here has a, has a long-standing relationship. Kara has established a, a friendship agreement with uh, Joetsu uh, City Council in Niigata Prefecture where there was an Australian uh, group of POWs who were there and actually one of the, the Kara residents uh, died over there. So there's been lots of programs, lots of exchanges. Uh, Kara Council has an employee exchange with Joetsu City. So we have a really strong relationship with Japan. Graham Apthorpe, author of The Man Inside the Bloodiest Outbreak and one of the organisers of this week's commemorations in Kara, speaking with Laura Chilingirian. This week, Nathan Lyon bowled Australia to a rollicking victory in the first Ashes Test at Edgbaston, taking six wickets on day five to secure a 251-run win. It marked the first time Australia has won the opening game of an away Ashes series since 2005, and the first time England has lost an Ashes Test in Birmingham since 2001. Having built an insurmountable 398-run lead, Australia was the only team with a chance of winning the game, needing 10 wickets to do so, and they came faster than expected, thanks largely to Lions 6 for 49. Former Australian leg spinner Stuart McGill watched the victory in a slightly unusual fashion. He told News Radio he spent the night sleeping over at the SCG with a group of other prominent Australian sporting figures to raise money for organisations on the front line of the fight against homelessness. We, uh, the Chapel Foundation, it's a pretty uh, a good bunch of guys, actually, as, as you know. They, uh, they raise money for um, homeless youth uh, to try and help uh, to make sure that kids that do have to sleep on the street do it uh, safely. And uh, if we could possibly get them off the street, that would be wonderful. But they, they do a lot better work than, uh, than I do, for sure. And Greg Chapel, of course, the, the man behind it all. What can people do if they want to help that cause? So Greg Chapel at, at Trevor Chapel slept uh, alongside me last night, uh, not too close because I snore a lot, but it's sportstarssleepout.com uh, is the, the uh, 
the URL, but you, you can go and find it. But look up the Chapel Foundation. They're, they're, they're very they're de- very decent people, um, and Trevor Chapel in particular is a very 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 good friend of mine, and he's he's one of the kindest men I've ever met. So you always do things that nice people ask you to do, and uh, that's why I slept on a piece of cardboard. Yeah, well, a sleeping bag, a piece of cardboard to raise funds, but I guess you had an Ashes Test victory to keep spirits high. Did you able able to follow it on the scoreboard or something? How did it work? Yeah. It was wonderful. The SCG last night they they, they kept the big screens on for us. So uh, I've, uh, I, I I work in a restaurant, and so I arrived a little bit later than a lot of people. But um, when I turned up, most people were asleep. But there were a couple of us standing out in the middle of the SCG, which is wonderful. And looking at the big screen, watching Nathan Lyon just do his business. And rolling the arm over yourself, I suspect, on your old uh, stamping ground. A turning, spitting fifth-day Edgbaston wicket. I imagine a spinner like yourself would have been delighted at watching Nathan Lyon's progress. Uh, he had a big job to do, and he did it very well indeed. I've played there a bit, and it always does turn big at Edgbaston. But the most important thing that people need to understand is that this Ashes series has started later than, you know, I think maybe ever. And Nathan Lyon is going to be your guy for the entire series. He, um, six for 49 this innings, but I think he, he could even rival Warney with a 40 wicket haul over the course of the five test matches. He's a, he's a fantastic bowler. He got his 350th last night. Uh, you know, who knows, he might be up to 390 by the end of the series. He said he got a few tips from a certain Mr Warren. People are running out of ways to describe Steve Smith, of course, given the batting effort he's produced and these comparisons with Bradman that he's never liked much. I guess your friend Greg Chappell would be in that conversation too, but what a comeback. Look, I, uh, I actually spoke to Steve after the first innings and, uh, look, I didn't think it bothered me too much, to be honest, but I was watching with a mate um, in the restaurant on a big screen and when he got his hundred, I started to cry, which was uh, which was very unusual for me. I didn't I, I didn't expect it, but I think it was because I knew how much it meant to him, and um, and it was a it was just a really lovely moment for him. And I think from here we'll see him re-establish himself as one of those top two or three batsmen in the world and um, good on him for not making a fuss uh, and just getting on with the job and helping his team win. And win they did. A redemption story, not too common, that's for sure. Uh, And in a word, Stuart, do we change the team for the second test at Lords? Yeah, I'd like to see a couple of the different bowlers in there. Uh, Yeah, Hazelwood Stark. That'd work for me. <laughs> Former Australian leg spinner Stuart McGill speaking to Glenn Bartholomew. Australia signed a new deal with NATO following a meeting between Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the head of the military alliance this week. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was in Australia for two days following a visit to New Zealand for security talks. He met with the Prime Minister, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, Defence Minister Linda Reynolds and other senior officials in Sydney. Since the end of the Cold War, NATO has been building partnerships with non-member countries and expanding its membership. John Blacksland is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the Australian National University. He explained some of the implications of Australia expanding its involvement in the alliance. I think it's worth putting in in perspective the fact that Australia has sought to, militarily at least, base its standards on NATO standards since the Cold War. 
So NATO has been a background partner of Australia for a long, long time, really. Um, but what we're seeing is that NATO is actually more than about the North Atlantic these days than ever before. Its involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, is an area in which Australia and New Zealand, for that matter, has partnered with NATO for the last couple of decades. And so there's some legacy there about a, nearly a generation's worth of involvement close with each other that has built up a level of confidence and trust and working level functionality between NATO and Australia and New Zealand that's now kind of come to the point where people are seeking to formalise it further. But, of course, there's more to it than just the Middle East. Of course, there's the whole question about great power contestation in the Indo-Pacific, and then there are issues of cyber security and environmental challenges. So this is something that NATO is mindful of, in part because NATO has a number of countries that are actually involved and invested in the Indo-Pacific. Here I'm thinking about France, just off Australia's coast to New Caledonia, and its Pacific territory. Then, of course, there's the United States and Canada, which are, you know, face the Pacific like we do. And then there's Britain, which has an investment in the five-power defence arrangement. It's interesting because we've also seen Germany, uh, a country that has militarily not bought into this space at all since the Second World War, um, has enormous uh, industrial investment in the region, and it's a partner that has not sought to up its military and security uh, relationship that much, but is finding NATO a convenient uh, vehicle for closer collaboration with countries like Australia in the Indo-Pacific. Well, I mean, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation was initially set up to be just that, an exclusive club of Western Northern Hemisphere countries allied against the Soviet Union. Why do you think it's managed to survive so long and so well, given that the catalyst for its existence is no longer with us? Well, it's, you know, it's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, but it really is the Western Europe and North America Treaty Organisation. Um, and it was set up that way in part to keep the Latin Americans out and, and keep countries like Australia out, because back then it was all about uh, the confrontation on the, you know, the so-called Iron Curtain between the Soviet countries, the Warsaw Pact countries, and the NATO countries of Western Europe. Those days are long gone. But NATO uh, found itself really reinvigorated and having a new uh, lease on life because of the challenges elsewhere. Going back, the post-Cold War years generated a whole swag of uh, operational imperatives for which NATO was ideally suited, and that then uh, in the post-9-11 world has seen them collaborate most effectively in places quite remote from the North Atlantic, particularly in the Middle East. And so it's, it's, it's been a reimagination of that space, but it's been then complicated further by the fact that we're now dealing with issues that are not about geography at all, but about uh, other domains, new domains. Here I'm talking about cyber security. This is something that's not about where you are physically located. It's about a capability that is that can span the globe in milliseconds. And in addition to that, there's the whole question of environmental, looming environmental catastrophe, for which military forces have a contributing role to play in mitigating risks and in compensating for extreme consequences from uh, from cyclones, from storms, from uh, sea level rise, etc., that that makes a lot of sense for these countries to collaborate over. And so we're seeing a you know NATO, in one sense quite an anachronism, uh, emerge with a whole new identity as a 
as a body that is particularly relevant for today, made all the more so by the fact that we're now worried a little bit about what the United States is going to do. So all these other countries that are NATO players, Canada, Britain, France, Germany, and so on, and Norway, Jens Stoltenberg is from Norway, former prime minister from there. These smaller countries are looking, they're finding a new vitality and utility in banding together in a forum for which they have no other alternative to engage with the United States, to engage on the big issues, the cyber challenges, great power contestation, enduring terrorism challenges, not just in the Middle East, but also in our patch in Southeast Asia and beyond. So there's so many issues now that are being addressed in this space that uh, it actually makes quite a lot of sense for Australia to buy in on this. Jens Stoltenberg was just in New Zealand getting uh, Jacinda Ardern, endorsing his his, uh, his involvement in, in the Pacific as well. Um, and uh, so it makes, us, makes a lot of sense for Australia to do so as well. Well, in recent years, particularly I'm thinking in the aftermath of the MH17 tragedy in Ukraine, there have been discussions of Australia signing up to full membership of NATO. Given that we keep finding ourselves working alongside NATO countries, as you've been talking about, is full membership something we should be seriously considering? Well, you know, it's a real delicate balancing act because do we really want to be committed to the defence of Western Europe in the case of a Russian attack out of Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea? Um, I'm not 100% sure that's a great idea. But conversely, do we want NATO to feel an obligation to do more to help Australia and New Zealand and our neighbourhood in bolstering security and stability in this patch? Well, actually, probably yes. So, you know, this is a fine balance question. John Blaxlin, Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at ANU, speaking to Matt O'Neill. The death of a woman in Queensland has prompted reminders about the seriousness of the flu this winter. 35-year-old mother of three, Jacinta Folds, was diagnosed with influenza A but developed a secondary infection and died a few days later in the Toowoomba Base Hospital. She's the 427th person to die from this year's horror flu season compared to 46 people last year. Her husband, Daniel Fold, says her condition quickly deteriorated. I took one look at her and knew I had to ring an ambulance. So I rang an ambulance. She was in and out. Um, ambulance showed up. They got her up. Did what they had to do. Went home for about an hour while they tried to stabilise her. And then... We got put in the ambulance and we got sent to the base and she got swarmed by doctors when we got there. Like I didn't think it was, I just thought oh, she was just flu but she got swarmed by the doctors when we got there and and then the doctor come to me and he said, um, he said, mate, she's really sick. I said, I oh, know. I've never seen her this sick ever. I'm like, I've never seen her that sick. And then yeah, he turned to me and he's like, no, mate, well, she could die. And I, well, I, was, I hit the ground. I asked him again what he said. He told me. And I, was, I just couldn't comprehend it. Like, we got to say our last words together. We told each other we loved each other and... She apologised, and I said, don't be sorry. And after that, 
they put her out and she crashed. Professor Ian Barr is the Deputy Director of the World Health Organisation Collaborating Centre on Influenza and one of Australia's leading experts on the flu. He spoke with News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew, who started by asking if Miss Fold's death was a sad reminder of just how damaging the flu can be. Yes, it is, and uh, people often associate influenza just with the elderly, uh, but it can affect all ages, and all uh, ages are susceptible to influenza, and unfortunately, uh, there are deaths right across the age spectrum. How serious is the risk of contracting a, a secondary infection like what happened to this woman? Look, it's not uh, that common, but it does happen, and uh, that can be quite severe, as in this case, uh, especially if you're immunocompromised or elderly or very young. We heard a bit of what her husband had to say, and it does drive home how quickly influenza A can see people deteriorate. Yes, it does, and uh, this is, again, across all ages, so uh, you can be quite healthy in the morning, uh, sick in the evening, and have a life-threatening uh, disease within three or four days. So it does happen very quickly. So, you know, you need to act on these uh, uh, signs uh, quite early uh, uh, on if possible. I mentioned the uh, hundreds of deaths that have occurred this year compared to last year. What's been different about this year's strain? Well, this year it's been a very unusual season. We started quite early, uh, months earlier than we normally do. We even had some summer influenza, which is quite unusual. Uh, we've had a couple of influenza strains uh, circulating at once. Uh, first it was influenza AH1 and then influenza AH3. So it's a little unusual. And uh, we had a very quiet season last year. So I think all these things have contributed to a bigger season this year. And uh, we're suffering the consequences of a large season. Her husband did say that he thought uh, the flu vaccine was crap, unquote, but is now urging everybody to get vaccinated. A, a great reminder on the importance of that. Yes, look, the influenza vaccine is not a perfect vaccine, uh, but it's the best measure we have to protect yourself against influenza. And there's still quite a bit of influenza circulating around Australia especially on the East Coast. So if you're wanting to be protected against influenza, then I would urge you to consider having vaccination, even at this late stage. Is it hitting parts of Australia worse than others, Ian? I've noticed how prevalent it's been in South Australia. South Australia's had a very heavy dose of influenza this year. They're now tailing off, so they've just about finished their season, as have Western Australia. But on the East Coast of Australia, we still have lots of influenza circulating. So uh, there's still a, a, a good chance that you might end up with influenza uh, uh, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Did I hear someone suggest that it might even be worth considering a, a supplement, a booster shot of sorts, even if you have had one so far? Look, I think uh, the jury's still out on the value of having uh, extra doses. Uh, there's some evidence that it does have some improvement, but uh, you know, there's no strong evidence to support that. But there are antivirals available, so if people uh, do uh, contract influenza, they should talk to their GP about uh, having uh, antivirals uh, as a treatment. If they're used early on in the infection, they can ameliorate the disease. Professor Ian Barr, Deputy Director of the World Health Organisation Collaborating Centre on Influenza, speaking with Glenn Bartholomew. The CSIRO this week launched an effort to scan the floor of the Coral Sea. The CSIRO's Marine National Facility RV Investigator set off from Cairns this week on a 28-day mission to uncover hidden undersea volcanoes. Associate Professor Joe Whitaker is the chief scientist at the University of Tasmania. She spoke to News Radio Sarah Hall via satellite phone from the vessel. So at the moment we're about 270 kilometres northeast of Mackay. The water's about 500 metres deep. And over the next day, we're heading more in a southeast direction, sort of parallel to the coast to our first dredge site. The first dredge site's uh, at a place called Frederick Reef. Uh, so the, it's a seamount that comes all the way from the seafloor, which is 
two to three thousand meters deep, and it comes all the way to the surface. So there's you know breaking waves and um, little bits of land out there, and we're trying to get some rocks from a couple of thousand meters below sea level. Tell us more about this mission that you've undertaken. What are you hoping to find? So we're hoping to get rock samples from a whole bunch of seamounts, so underwater volcanoes that are in a couple of chains offshore the Queensland coast. So they go from south to north. They get older in the north and younger in the south. And so we're going to try to dredge these really old um, submerged volcanoes. They're sort of 30 to 50 million years old. And we're trying to understand when they formed and how they formed. And there's a really massive plateau far in the north um, in Australian waters a little bit, but mostly Papua New Guinean waters. And we're hoping to sample that one, and we're trying to understand if that's the birthplace of all the foxes. And if there was a really massive eruption there about 50 to 60 million years ago that formed this enormous plateau that's about the size of Victoria. How many sea volcanoes are out there in this part of the ocean? Well, there's lots. I haven't counted them, actually. I don't know. But there's, there's, there's dozens of them, um, probably 20 or 30 that we've sampled, and there's more than that. They, so they stretch all the way down to Tasmania. I had another cruise earlier this year that sampled a bunch of seamounts off the east coast of Tassie. Um, so they're, they're actually all over the place, and they're, you know, two to 3,000 metres high, and they can be quite large. The ones we've got down near Tassie are a bit smaller, and the ones up this end are a bit bigger, and so that's kind of an interesting thing as well. We're not too sure exactly why that is. We think the volcanism was a bit stronger when it was up north here. And um, there's also volcanoes um, onshore, and so they're, they're related to, um, we think they're related to these, these chains that are offshore. So things like the Glasshouse Mountains is some onshore volcanism, and so we're looking sort of for the offshore um, analogues of those. Are any of these underwater volcanoes active at all? Not the ones up here. Oh, look, I'm going to be very surprised if any of them are active. We're hoping that we dredged a young one um, earlier this year down near Tasmania, so we're hoping to get the... It takes a long time to get the ages back. It takes nearly a year to get those results, so we're hoping to get those results early next year and um, see if, we've, if we have found the, the youngest end of the chain. Uh, the youngest end of the chain that's onshore Australia is supposed to be underneath Bass Strait, but there's no volcano at the surface. So you've taken the CSIRO's floating laboratory out there. Can you take us through exactly what's involved in dredging an underwater volcano? Yeah, so I think I think how dredging seamounts is one of the least technical things that the ship does. But it's, it, it's, it's tricky because you're going so deep, I guess. We're trying to get rock samples from kilometres down underneath the, the sea, on the seafloor. Um, and so essentially we have um, a wire mesh bucket that we deploy off the back of the ship. Um, we map the seafloor first so we can find the seamount and get a really good image of it. We're essentially looking for a steep cliff-like part of the side of that seamount. So we're really interested in the rocks. We're really interested in the rocks that first formed and the volcano formed. So we want all those cliffs so that we can put the bucket over the back of the ship and we let out a lot of cable and we essentially drag that bucket up that cliff and hope some rocks fall in our bucket and then we bring it to the surface. It's really exciting standing on the back of the ship waiting for the bucket to just come over the edge to see if you've got any, anything at all. It's a bit like Lucky Dip at the school fair. Associate Professor Joe Whitaker, Chief Scientist at the University of Tasmania, speaking to Sarah Hall. And that's it for this edition of the Weekly Post. I'm Ellie Grounds. Bye for now. abc.net.au slash newsradio. Get your news now.